Psalm 44 is written in the shadow of Israel's faithlessness and defeat. The nation lost. Many lives had been lost. The enemies had raided their cities. The people sold off into slavery and deported to other Gentile nations. In their despair, they reflected on God's past work and prayed that he would deliver them from their present persecution. And so Psalm 44 is a prayer for the persecuted. A prayer for the persecuted. The psalm will break down as follows. Verses 1 through 8, past conquest. Verses 9 to 16, present calamities. Verse 17 to 22, prevailing confidence. And verse 23 to 26, a plaintive craving. So let's begin with verses 1 to 8 and consider the past conquest. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land. And their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved me from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. The psalmist begins by reminding God, as if God needs a reminder, but nonetheless reminds God that the present generation has heard of Yahweh's great deeds in the past, as they were told by their fathers. That through a referral oral transmission and the public reading of the scriptures throughout the generations. The days of old are identified in the following verses as those days when they first entered in the promised land. First, God drove out the nations with his hands. The verb drove out means to he dispossessed them. He took them and removed them from the land. Second, Israel was planted in the land in their place. Notice Israel did not plant themselves, God planted them. And the stress of God's action continues in verse 3. They didn't take the land by their own sword, nor were they saved or delivered from their enemies by their own arm. It was God's right hand, it was the hand of his power, his strong arm, and his presence, the light of his countenance that gave them the land and protected them. And the reason for these works of God is stated in verse 3 because he favored them. He accepted them, he was pleased with them. It was simply because of God's love that he blessed Israel. This is reflected in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. And what was true in the days of old, the psalmist argues, should be true now. God should still be the sovereign rule of Israel. That's why he says, you are my king, O God. And as king, you are the commander of Israel's armies. So command victories for Jacob, for Israel. And the Hebrew plural victory signifies a full and complete victory. Now the triumphs that are being requested are specified in verse 5. We will push down our enemies. With your, through your, with your name we'll trample those who come against us. Those prepositional phrases, through you and through your name, literally mean by your power and by your authority we're going to push down or gore and trample like a raging bull, goring and stomping the enemies is how they're picturing God going before them. The psalmist says he refuses to trust in his own bow or sword. It's God in whom he trusts. 
because it is God who has saved them from their foes in the past and sent their enemies off in shame or in defeat in the past. And so in God we boast, in God we worship, in God we praise publicly all day long and give thanks to your name forevermore. How do you handle defeat? I mean, Israel has been defeated. And the response here is to reflect back on what God has done in the past. Notice they didn't blame God. They didn't shift blame. They didn't turn around and say, oh, well, you know, you failed us. We don't see that here. Rather, they go back over their past victories and those past victories give them hope for future triumphs. And this isn't a wishful thinking. He's basing this, he's, he, he's, he's assured of future triumph because of what God has done in the past. And friends, you and I have the same resources available to us. We can look back and see what God has done for us. There are going to be times in which we're going to be defeated, and it's not because God failed. There could be a myriad of reasons for why we failed, but I know this, it's not because God abandoned us. And so when we come to those times of defeat or failure in our life, we need to reflect back on what God has done in the past and have our hope renewed in what God can do in the future. Look at their present calamities in verses 9 to 16. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoils for themselves. You give us a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock amongst the people. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me, because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. Now, I'll give the psalmist credit. He's a realist. Despite past victories, despite the hope that he has, he now deals with the sting of failure. Notice he didn't begin with the sting of failure. He began by getting his focus right. What God did in the past, what God can do in the future. But in the present, he's got to be a realist. At the present, there's no victory. They're, they have been defeated. And the basis for this is, again, not that God failed them. No, God rejected them. You have cast us off. See, the issue here is they went to war without God. You did not go out with our armies. And if it is true, as the Psalms suggest, that Israel has been faithful to God and doesn't deserve defeat for her sins, as we'll see in verses 17 and 22, then it's possible that she went to fight in the wrong war, presuming again upon God's presence rather than waiting for his will and then his presence. You know, and isn't that true of us? That, you know, so often we assume God's blessing and we launch out in, in, with, with our plans and with our programs and then we come up empty-handed. And like Peter, we fished all night and we caught nothing. We got to be real. You know, it's not the fact that, you know, God rejected us because of sin. Maybe it's the fact that God rejected us because we went out with the wrong program. We made the wrong plans and we presumed on God's blessing. Listen, you can justify any plan and program you come up with and you can even put slap scripture verses on it. 
But you've got to get to the bottom line. Has God told us to move? Has he mandated that plan? Has he mandated that program? And if not, he will not go out with us. So you can have all the plans and programs you want. But if they're not the plan and program God wants, he didn't want to bless it. And with God absent from the battle, Israel ran into defeat. And he says, this is God's doing. You made us turn back from the enemy. Israel is despoiled by those who hate her. They're plundered. God made his people to be like sheep intended for food. By the way, sheep are docile and dumb, according to Isaiah 53, 7. Israel is scattered. They're deported. They're dispersed into slavery amongst the Gentiles. He sells his people for next to nothing. In other words, they've become worthless. God got nothing in return for his people. And adding to their shame, they've now become a reproach to the nations around them. They've, they're scorned. They're derided. They're, they're, they're the pun of a bad joke. They're a byword. They're a proverb for disgrace. People shake their head and taunt in a manner. We see the early roots of anti-Semitism here. And the psalmist, who we're assuming is the king, now adds his own eyewitness account. We're insolent. We're a reproach. I cover my face. I'm ashamed. The whole situation is bleak. Abandoned by God. Rejected by people. Defeated by their enemies. Goods plundered. People deported. Sold into slavery. And now the king himself is disgraced. Once again, my friends, there is an analogy for the Christian ministry. If God's blessing isn't upon us, I don't care how much emotional enthusiasm you, you, you create for your plan or program, the enemy, the world, the flesh, the devil, is going to triumph. And when that happens, the supporters of those plans and programs will be dispersed and the leadership will be discredited. Verse 17 and 22. The prevailing confidence. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our, hearts have, has not, our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadows of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are considered as sheep. To be slaughtered. Notice the psalmist protest in verse 17. Israel has not turned from God. We're still keeping the covenant. We're still fulfilling our obligations. We're still obedient. And our obedience is from the heart. It's not just ritualistic. We're genuinely obedient. Nevertheless, God did not respond favorably to them. The place of jackals in verse 19 is a reference for the desert. You can cross-reference that with Isaiah 34, 13 to 14. They've been defeated out in the desert. The shadow of death is upon them. In verse 20 and 21, the psalmist says, Listen, we didn't sin, nor did we apostatize. We did not forget the name of our God. We didn't bow our hands to a foreign God. We continued to worship and obey the true God. We didn't deny Him. But despite their faithfulness, they're killed all day long as sheep for the slaughter. Israel, the psalmist isn't just referring to Israel's military defeat. But as a result of the defeat, they're going through a time of suffering. 
Paul employed this verse in Romans 8.36 to make the point that although we suffer, we are still secure in Christ's love. And even though we may suffer because we went out and tried to enact a plan or a program without God's blessing, that doesn't mean we're still not loved by God. Verses 23 to 26. We come to the end of psalm, of this psalm and verse 23 to 26. Let's look at the plaintive craving. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Now, the, 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 this is a bold chiding charge that Yahweh sleeps. And it comes from one of despair, but also in trust. They still trust that God is king. They still trust that God can bring victory. And he's, and he's pleading that they not be rejected forever. God, why are you hiding your face? Why are you forgetting our affliction of defeat? Why are you forgetting our oppression from our enemies? But it's God's custom in judgment to hide his face and to forget because, as his means of rejection. Again, behind these questions, behind these statements, is despair. They're in the dust. They're humiliated. They're defeated. Only God can help them. And so in verse 26, the psalmist ends by calling upon God to act. The word for mercies here, loving kindness, as we have it translated, same word for covenant love. They appeal for help and deliverance based on the covenant. It's, not their, it's no longer their faithfulness or their merit of Israel as the basis of appeal, but rather God's faithfulness to his commitment to the covenant. And so simply they're saying, Lord, be true to yourself. You know, Psalm 44 is like the book of Job. It deals with the issue of the righteous suffering. You know, theology says that if Israel is faithful, God will act. What happens if theology doesn't work? Friends, it wasn't necessarily a case that theology didn't work. It's that they didn't have a complete theology. Our theology is often incomplete. You know, and we get one thing stuck in our head. Well, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. And that is true. There's no denial of that. But there's more to theology than just that statement. Listen, coupled with obedience is also not stepping out on our own. See, not only does... Disobedience brings cursing. But presuming that God is blessing something when he's not also results in a curse. And so we need to be very careful that, you know, in our personal lives and in our ministries, that before we undertake any ministry, any program, any plan, that's got to be bathed in prayer. And that we've clearly got to identify that, yes, this is something that God wants so often, I think the church in general has created plans and programs because, well, if we have this plan, it'll accomplish this, and if we do this program, it'll result in that. And I can't tell you the number of times I've seen plan and programs, though at first they may seem to work, end up in utter failure and end up, you know, looking back down the line and, you know, a ministry or a church is in shambles. You know, but, oh, man, we had these plans and programs. Yeah, but... Plans and programs don't guarantee God's blessing. If God was never in it to begin with, then all it was was the machinations of man. And that's why it resulted in failure. And that's why 
so many ministries today are suffering defeat. Our response should be soul-searching introspection. We must recognize not necessarily that sin was the issue, but that the issue may have simply been we didn't wait for God. We stepped out without Him. So Christian, before you make any plan, before you enact any program, whether in your own life or in the life of the church, step back and ask, is this really what God wants? And i got to be honest, it's going to be easy to sit back and say, oh, well, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing, so wouldn't God be pleased with a good thing? Sure God can be pleased with a good thing, but he's not pleased with even a good thing if it's not his thing. And so we need to take the steps to ensure that this is truly God's thing. And one of the ways that happens is through the voice of many counselors. Just because you or someone else thinks it's great doesn't necessarily mean it's great for God. And that's why he always encourages the voice of many counselors. And then to determine, okay, this is what God would have for us. Father in heaven, Lord, as we close our time here in prayer, Lord, we come to you with this psalm, this prayer for the persecuted. And Lord, well, we wouldn't say that we're quote-unquote persecuted. We have to be honest to confess that, Father, sometimes that we've gone out and We've, tra- we've enacted plans, we've initiated programs, and we've ended up defeated. We've fallen, and Father, the, it, it hasn't worked. And yet we scratch our heads, Father, because we don't understand. We, we planned our work, and we worked the plan, and yet the plan failed. And Father, maybe the honest evaluation is that we, we, we must face fact that we planned without you. Oh, we gave you lip service. We said the right words. We applied the right verses. We never stopped and asked for your will to be done. So, Father, forgive us. And, Father, as we go forth, whether collectively or individually, and we make plans and we enact programs, help us, Father, before acting on any of them, to make sure that they are your will for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.